0: Hi, I'm Sean Baker, and I'm the director of Tangerine and the Florida Project, and you are listening to Film Spotting.
1: What
2: kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're
0: not interested in art? No. Now
2: look, we're going to do
0: this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kembanar, and I'm Josh Larson. I am curious how your life, first of all, has changed since the announcement, and what is the biggest pressure you face? Is it external? Or is, is it too early for that kind of pressure? Or is it internal? Is it pressure you're putting on
1: yourself? But there was none until you just brought it up now, and now I'm terrified. What are you doing?
0: From August twenty fourteen, that's director Ryan Johnson, just weeks after he was announced as the writer director of Star Wars Episode Eight. Ryan was our guest via Skype on the big screen at Chicago's Music Box Theater for the five hundredth episode of film spotting recorded for a live audience.
2: With the release of The Last Jedi now only weeks away, we revisit that conversation with Ryan, who talks about some of the movies he was watching with his crew during pre production and his admiration for those much maligned stars wars prequels really does he he really say that Mm -hmm. you Mm. forgot huh
0: Mm. we'll also see how our 2015 review of the force awakens holds up against a revisit of the j.j abrams directed film that and more ahead on film spotting Happy Thanksgiving weekend everyone. Josh, by the time everyone hears this, we will have had our Thanksgiving meals, spending some time with family, doing anything big, going anywhere fun. We are actually. I know you guys always
2: travel. So nothing bit. new Gotta to go you. back to Iowa. This will be the first time we're gonna have to take a flight to celebrate Thanksgiving, a little nervous about it leaving the day before, so I've heard that's not a good idea. We'll see if we make it. <laughs> where are you headed? You gonna reveal it? We're going to the DC area where my sister is. Okay. So should be fun. We're gonna do a colonial Thanksgiving at Colonial Williamsburg. So I yeah.
0: love it. we're Gonna do it right. Well, by the time I'm in Iowa eating my second Thanksgiving meal, I will have already been to Portland, Oregon, where I will have had a surprise party for my sister's birthday. She's been out there for seven or eight years, and I've never been there to see her, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping that I had a chance to meet up with some film spotting listeners as well, so I'll let you know on a future show how that went. We're about three weeks out from the release of the Ryan Johnson directed Star Wars Episode 8 The Last Jedi. We thought we'd use this time to look back at a couple of Star Wars and Ryan Johnson related conversations we've had in the past. We'll play. Our 2014 interview with Ryan recorded at the live taping of our 500th show, and we had planned to have Ryan join us for that show well in advance because he was kind of a key figure in the very early days of film spotting. One of the first filmmakers we interviewed on the show, we were early champions of his movie, Brick, obviously named our Brick Award after it, and he was always just a champion of film spotting, and just weeks before... He'd already agreed to come on. It was made public that Ryan had been hired to direct Star Wars Episode Eight. So just by chance, we were maybe Ryan's very first interview or a close second following that huge life-altering news. And now it's happened again, where we were planning this revisit of The Force Awakens around the same time
2: that big breaking news happens about Ryan and Star Wars. Yeah, he's going to do another trilogy. And I'm still not exactly clear is he directing the first of this next trilogy and perhaps just involved in other areas with the other installments. I don't know if that's even been all laid out yet, but mm-hmm. for sure he's going to be the mastermind Over this new trilogy that's going to be set within the same Star Wars universe, I understand, but not within this particular narrative trajectory Mm -hmm. of these nine films we're in Mm -hmm. the middle of. And he's
0: basically been locked away making this movie ever since we talked to him. So it is still kind of current to hear this three year old interview because no one's really heard from him. So we hope maybe at some point down the road we will get a fresh conversation with him.
2: But for now, we'll have to settle for this. Before we get to that interview, to prep for The Last Jedi, we decided to revisit 2015's The Force Awakens, take another look at it. I don't think we often have the time to do something like this, Adam. I I almost never see movies twice. Well, and the other thing is, you know, I think we both want to be completists in that we'd like to watch every director's previous film before seeing a new film. And time just doesn't always allow for that. But in this case, we had a little bit of a gap here with the holiday coming up. We both wanted to make time to see The Force Awakens and kind of get in that star wars vibe again Mm -hmm. so we were able to do that take another look at the film and also listen to our initial review mm-hmm. of the film when we came out of that critic screening immediately. I think it was maybe the Tuesday before mm-hmm. the film came out in theaters and we went right to the studio. Early public screenings were still a couple of days away. Details of the film were an intensely guarded secret. They were. I remembered earlier today that we weren't
0: even allowed as critics to reveal the location of the screening. We couldn't That's talk about right.
2: it. We couldn't post anything about, about I that. I think they were afraid people were going to sneak into the theater. It wasn't quite as ridiculous as Blade Runner 2046, Making where some people had to sign things disclaimer. that said, all you can basically say is the title over and over in but your review. that was review. a first. Yeah, that was a first. Uh, it was pretty intense, though, around The Force Awakens. So we're going to replay that original review for you here, and then we'll share some of your feedback on that review, some of the reactions from listeners that we didn't have a chance to get to before. We're also going to talk talk a little bit about if our reactions changed about the film having taken this second i think it might have been a third look for me actually just a warning we were very sure to avoid spoilers at the time in Mm -hmm. our initial review we are however going to include those spoilers in this revisit there will probably be some in the feedback as well so consider yourselves warned yeah there will be a point where you will hear the shift from non-spoiler review
0: into spoiler review and then all bets are off as we get into the feedback so if somehow you're listening to this and you haven't seen the force awakens yet i'm not sure why you would do that i would like to meet that person but if you are and you want to hold off you've got about 20 minutes here and then you will get a warning before we get into the stuff you don't want to know so from
2: december 2015 here's that review of the force awakens the dark side A jedi
1: It's calling to you.
0: This is a unique situation for us for a couple reasons. This is the first Star Wars movie we've reviewed on the show, the two of us, and only the second Star Wars movie that has been discussed on the show after Revenge of the Sith. A little bit of film spotting trivia back in February 2005 when current producer slash original co-host Sam Van Halgren and I decided to start the podcast. We actually considered waiting until May to launch it. Because we wanted our first review to be something memorable or at least momentous. We couldn't wait. So we talked about the terrible be cool instead. And my rave review of Revenge of the Sith came out in episode 14. I knew you loved it. Did Sam like it too? I can't remember. I should have checked the ratings. I think Sam gave it a half-hearted Thumbs up. Okay. I think he was into it, but not nearly as much as me. So yes, I was a big fan of one of the prequels. No, I have not seen that prequel since. This conversation also stands apart in that it's the first review I can think of where I'm not just worried about spoilers. I'm actually not sure we're safe giving away any plot details at all, lest we somehow ruin the experience for those who are daring to download this before seeing the movie, which means we might actually be praised for offering the most nonspecific specific superficial review possible i'll be happy if it clocks in at more than seven or eight minutes we've also never sat next to each other during a movie and had a clear tell that would reveal whether one of us was enjoying the movie or not just before the movie began you turned to me and said see this banana if i eat this before the movie ends you'll know whether or not the movie worked i said well see this protein bar i'm eating this regardless (laughs) of how much i'm enjoying the movie because i'm starving screening started at 11 it was going to go after one. Exactly. We had our concerns. Josh always comes prepared. The lights go up, one empty banana peel, (laughs) one uneaten protein bar. I suppose I could simply ask, were you hungrier than you thought, or did J.J. Abrams fail to awaken the force in you? And if that's not enough to chew on, I'll go a little bit deeper, though I'll be very vague and ask you this. For all those prequel haters out there who lamented the way George Lucas ruined their childhood. Is it to Abrams' credit or discredit that with Episode 7 he seems essentially to have tried to hand that childhood back to every kid like me who vividly remembers watching Episode 4 at the drive in, wanting so desperately to be Han Solo and Luke
2: Skywalker? I did eat the banana. It's true, uh, but you know what? It was it was mainly because the stomach had grumbled about four times, and and I just had to do it. I was you gave was, in, in to in, the dark side. I gave him. I was entertained by this. It was a lot of fun, uh, absolutely. I think your second question is the one I'll be wrestling with a little bit longer. This is somewhat what. I expected Abrams would do, given his track record, and provide something that was safe, nostalgic, but still well done and entertaining. And that's what we have here. I enjoyed it as someone who also, as a child, played Han Solo in the backyard with the neighborhood friends, days on end, and as someone... maybe not like you beyond Revenge of the Sith, who liked all of the prequels. Uh, I would say this is more of a nostalgic exercise than the prequels. Uh, I would say it's perhaps a little less imaginative than the prequels. Those are my immediate reactions. I'm not quite sure yet whether I'm going to say whether it's a lesser or better film than them. It's a good Star Wars picture. I'll say that for sure, which is something I can say of all of them. So to my mind, we haven't had a bad one yet. Abrams is interesting. You know, I, I'm i trying to think of him and thinking of Star Wars in general as the work of an auteur, okay? George Lucas was the auteur behind this franchise. And he's not discussed that way partly because he wasn't the credited specific director on a number of the original films. But he certainly had that level of control mm-hmm. up until now. And I think one of the reasons I appreciated the prequels is because you can feel that auteur stamp on those pictures for better or for worse. Abrams is. It's interesting when you look at him. He's he's something more like an Ottawa tour, where he he can capture the tone, style, aura of a previous franchise and make that his signature stamp. His signature stamp is being able to adapt and adopt other people's signature stamps in a really effective way. He's mm-hmm. almost like you you push a button and out comes your familiar pop culture product that's going to make you feel good and make you feel happy. and And it's well done. I don't mean that to be too dismissive, but he did it with Mission Impossible 3. He did it on two Star Trek pictures, both of which I liked, and he did it with Super 8, which you know was not part of an existing franchise, but I think we could just subtitle that Spielberg. It's essentially a Spielberg picture. Mm-hmm. I liked all of those. I think he's done a similar thing here. He is hitting every beat that fans expect. He's also polishing off the, to borrow an original trilogy phrase, the scruffy Mm -hmm. of those films and maybe here's a question to start with i'll even admit there are sequences in the prequels where i cringe going back to the original trilogy i'm glad to hear that going back to the original trilogy as an adult there are moments where i cringed for different reasons did you have a cringe moment here Yeah, I had a couple of them, but only in the most throwaway sense. They
0: were throwaway lines, literally what you would consider a throwaway line. Someone at the end of a scene makes a little crack that's a callback to something that we would only know from the previous films. And I felt like there was no point in those because they weren't that funny to begin with. And I just didn't understand the nod even if you weren't going to give it a little bit more weight. So those felt a little bit too hokey for me, but... Those were very minor, maybe two or three of those. Otherwise, there were certainly no major sequences that did that. Though if we were going to get into specific details, which of course we are not, I will say that there is one moment in particular between two characters that's a showdown, that is a standoff of a certain kind, that maybe two more formidable actors... And I actually like quite a bit both of the actors in the scene, but maybe two more formidable actors really could have pulled off. It's something along the lines of it just occurs to me because, again, we haven't really thought about any of the stuff that we're saying at this point. It reminds me of the kind of showdowns you see in the X-Men movies where you've got Patrick Stewart going against Ian McKellen or Michael Fassbender and James McAvoy. And you can believe that they're just playing mind games with each other and it still feels very powerful and it feels like there's a lot of action. You'll have to tell me off air which one that is because there's a number of sequences you could describe that way. You could, you're right. But there's one in particular that I think most people when they see the movie will probably know what I'm referring to and it just doesn't quite pull off the way I would have hoped. I agree with a lot of what you said about the movie and it sounds like we are on a similar wavelength in terms of addressing this overall question of is it a good thing or a bad thing? That he really has gone back and recaptured episode four. I mean, he's repackaged episode four. And that's about all I want to say about it, because, again, I don't want to say too much in terms of details. But he's repackaged that and really has given us everything as fans we would want to see. But then is that a lack of imagination? Is that a case where we say, okay, well, he had to at least lay the groundwork. And you know what? We'll see where the other directors take the series. Maybe that's where the imagination will really come in. That's where they'll do something to really challenge and shake up this whole saga. As opposed to taking everything that worked about episode four and sort of putting a new sheen on it and giving us new characters to respond to. That's something I'm going to continue to wrestle with. I think I enjoyed the movie overall more than you did. I was really caught up in the film and the overall story. And I guess the response I have, the one I'm trying to formulate to people like me, like you, who may see this movie and may be asking themselves this question, or maybe most people just simply won't care, they'll love the trip that J.J. Abrams takes them on, is maybe what he's done, it doesn't reflect a lack of imagination. It doesn't even reflect a sense of him merely wanting to give the fans what they want maybe it really is about Abrams tapping into what makes this series so remarkable. And it is the mythical nature of it. The sense of time, the sense of everything being a little bit circular and cyclical, and the way this storyline does so perfectly dovetail with episode four, in terms of some of the details, but in terms, of course, of some of the characters as well. He's tapping into that myth that opened with that scroll that says, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, which even at age five or seven didn't make any sense. It sort of caught you off guard, like, what are they doing? What are they playing at here? Because this is the future. It has to be the future, but no, it's not. It's the sense of the myths that define who we are, the stories we tell ourselves, and those stories, Josh, they never change. About family, about identity, those stories go on and on and on with new characters and new faces. And maybe that's what Abram gets. And maybe that's why
2: he really was the best person to direct this series. And that's a talent too, right? I mean, it's not, he's not copying things. He handles these properties with kid gloves, with respectful gloves, with the gloves of a super fan. He's, Mm -hmm. you know, he's this generation of filmmakers who are raised on these pop culture properties and is coming to them as someone who was one of those kids, you know? And so it's a different, that's a different mentality than someone who is seeing it Purely as a product to be mimicked. He sees them as stories that struck him at one point, whether it was specifically Star Wars or not. I'm talking about this whole fantasy slash sci fi mm-hmm. slash horror the genre takeover of Hollywood, essentially, is what we have now. And he's one of the directors that grew up on that from, say, the 80s on, 70s perhaps, and is now revisiting them as a fan. So you can feel it. And it does dovetail very nicely in terms of theme, the nature of evil, the Mm -hmm. way it plays out in families is exactly there. And not in a sense of just, again, copying the plot points, but interweaving them in this larger tale of how This is a galaxy governed by whether or not you are going to give in to urges for both good and urges for evil. And, you know, the the strength of Star Wars has always been how it's not just despite the fact that there are stormtroopers and there are, you know, good guys and bad guys, Mm -hmm. clearly. But the heart of this is that it's all in one person, essentially. And who is that one person and where are they going to end up? So I think the movie does a good job of capturing that. But, man, when you talk about repackaging, uh, the overall scope of this— Story, which we won't get into details, but really, if if you want the details, watch A New Hope. Mm-hmm. You've got the details. That's right? what I'm saying, yeah. And it even comes down to – I would love to revisit certain sequences side by side. I think they might have cut, might have edited some of these things exactly the way it is there in are A New
0: Hope. There are shots that are no doubt taken –
2: Exactly from the bar that movie. on Tatooine mm-hmm. in A New Hope when Let's they visit a details, similar Josh. bar here, but <laughs> I'm, know not, all even those gonna, shots, I'm yeah. not even going to tell you what happens. But the the way it reveals side characters or other people in the room, it's pat, It felt to me like it's patterned on the same editing scheme. Also For when sure. they're X-wing fighters. Staging an attack. The cuts from the ships to the pilots inside are exactly Mm -hmm. the same. And so there's that question again. Are we just experiencing a thrill of nostalgia? Is this copying or is this some intermingling in between where it's, uh, you know, a new form of sort of nodding to something that's also its own style of art. And and I think Abrams does the good thing about Abrams in all the films he's made is found the way to hit that that spot in between. Whereas something like Jurassic World earlier this year, I feel like, went over to the pure nostalgia, let's just hit what we think we have to to evoke those memories Mm -hmm. in the audience. But the movie itself didn't feel very committed to what maybe those emotions were in the original audience, whereas this film you do feel a commitment to why all the previous Star Wars films work.
0: Yeah, and while we're talking about Abrams and what he taps into and what he understands, he really does boil down the essence of that battle between good and evil of light and dark in this film. This is another one where some people may watch the movie, Josh, and have widely different takes on whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, how much he distills it down to the point where in key confrontations, how much light appears in the shot actually affects characters as something becomes darker, their behavior changes with that. I mean, he isn't shy about being on the nose about that. And I think that maybe there are times in the movie where I even felt a little bit taken aback by it. And other times, like in the specific example I'm giving there, where I actually thought it was really, really effective. I think, too, what does make this movie work, what Abrams got right was finding a vessel for that battle. Finding the new Luke Skywalker to take us forward and be that beacon of hope in this saga. And it's Daisy Ridley. And I think she's remarkable. And she is someone who is very earnest in the same way a Luke Skywalker was. And maybe a little bit naive, but really, no, she's pretty worldly. And she's a bit of a scavenger. Actually, here's what Abrams really did. And I wonder if it was in his mind at all to do this. He gave us a heroine who is almost equal parts Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. For all of us kids who wanted to be both at different times, depending on our mood, we've got it in the form of Daisy Ridley. I can't wait to see what more we're going to get from her
2: in the series. That was my question for you. Has this film offered any characters that you are excited about following? Yeah in the next two pictures. Multiple characters, yeah. Okay, good, because, you know, that's the challenge. The, The movie is more nostalgic than the prequels because it relies quite a bit on characters we already know and love. I mean, Han Solo is not a cameo here. Nope. Harrison Ford gives us a lot of screen time. And so that is really the challenge. As much as I enjoyed that, I think Ford, for all his cantankerousness, mm-hmm. really falls back into character and manages so to do it. So falls back into character. And, and it's managed, incredible. you know. And he, and he just does it with – the chemistry between him and a guy wearing a seven-foot carpet is amazing. Yep. I mean, the way he's able to do that. But he even – Develops it with all these newcomers
0: as well instantly. He does. Whether it's John Boyega or it's Daisy Ridley, they instantly have this rapport that the movie needs. He becomes a bit of a father figure. He becomes a bit of a heroic figure to them. They both need that. Abrams doesn't overplay that.
2: And because he's he's, he's really perfect because he's transferring all of our affection from himself to these new characters. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm with you That's in it, wanting yeah. to follow Ridley in another film and see what she does. She is clearly the Skywalker figure, I would say. I think John Boyega is the Han Solo figure only because he has this reluctance To him, that has always defined Han Solo. See, I want to
0: defend what I was saying here, but it will give things away that I don't want to give away to people. So, yes, you're right. There is more Han Solo in Boyega's character, even down to him. And I don't think this is a spoiler. Being someone who initially is resistant Mm -hmm. of helping the resistance, so there's no doubt there's a parallel. But it's not a
2: one. It's not a one to one at all. What they're trying to do is essentially take these characteristics that we responded to in the original films and. Repackage again or recast them Mm -hmm. in new characters so that we have reluctance evidenced. We have bravery evidenced. We have untapped skill Mm -hmm. evidenced here in someone. We have loneliness and abandonment. Evidenced in someone as well. So yeah, those are so characteristics. Those. That's character, right? And, and that's what. And so they find a place me, to put those. Yeah, those
0: those original films had in spades, and this movie has, of course, as well.
2: So Ridley is key, and uh, yeah, I'll be excited to see where it takes her. Oscar Isaac, I could have used more of. Absolutely,
0: um, but think, we can always use. I more think of Oscar he's good. Isaac. There's
2: a little Han Solo in him too, for sure. Um, and there is. We should just acknowledge. There's also a Darth Vader figure here, mm-hmm. and that to me, is key in connecting it with the previous six films as well, because those were the stories of Vader, essentially. And so I'm glad to see that that element is carried through because it's been the heart of the franchise. And for this to move beyond and become strictly an action adventure picture that touches on some previous things from the films, it wouldn't have been much. There's much more action here, I'd say, than in all the other pictures. But still, it manages to evoke those themes and the character qualities as well. We talked about Harrison Ford, and I'm really
0: glad because he's such a treat to watch. And sure, there may be a little bit of that nostalgia where when he says certain lines and he gives certain looks, it takes you back to how you remember first encountering Han Solo. And it hasn't changed. And maybe there is some comfort in that. But it's more than comfort, Josh. It's more than nostalgia, Josh. It's that character. We were drawn to Han Solo because of the characteristics that made him who he was and those haven't gone away. He is still the essence of that character, and Harrison Ford still completely embodies that. And there is a moment, and this is the easiest thing to say about a Star Wars movie, I know, but I can say it about many movies I saw this year. I just saw Creed just last night. There were moments in that that got me a little bit choked up. There is a moment here involving Han Solo, and it's not the big emotional moment. It's really just him showing up on screen and the dialogue they have, the interaction, the way he has that interplay with those characters. I don't know what it was. I don't really know what it stirred in me, but
2: it was the kind of thrill that I go to movies for. Well, because it's so purely capturing exactly what we experienced before. And and that's to Ford's credit in being willing to do that and able to do that and Abrams' credit to creating the atmosphere for it. You know, I think it's funny because Solo is really, in Harrison Ford's performance in the original films, it's probably my favorite part And I know it was as a kid, but it's really the only postmodern element to those pictures. Otherwise, they're entire throwbacks to a more naive, innocent sort of filmmaking. And here Ford comes in with a certain snarkiness and a commentary on the action, uh, a Mm self-awareness that really doesn't exist otherwise in a very earnest trilogy and this movie is more postmodern I think because it plays that up not only in giving solo screen time but giving his commentary it seems to me more time than in the other films and I think that's a good match for Abrams too because there is that level of self-awareness that his films have certainly the Star Trek films have in how they're echoing the franchise that came before and so Ford now that I've seen the picture you know his involvement was crucial in getting this to work, and it's a huge reason why it does. Ben!
1: Han Solo. I've been waiting for this day for a long time.
2: Take off that mask. You don't need it.
1: What do you think you'll
0: see if I do?
2: The face of my
1: son.
0: Josh, you did bring up the idea of talking specifically about a climactic moment near the end of the movie, and if we haven't been clear, spoilers, we are spoiling the end of Star Wars The Force Awakens. We're not expecting anyone to listen to this portion of the show until after they have seen the movie. What did you make of the fact that J.J. Abrams kills off Han Solo?
2: I'm, You know, I'm okay with that development. I think Harrison Ford is probably the most okay with that development. Exactly. <laughs> um, is this the death Han Solo deserved, though? That's, that's the question that I'm wrestling with right now, again, coming out of this 30- Minutes ago, because he's, you know, as, since I've been a kid, he's my favorite character. I don't know that he perfectly represents what this franchise is all about. That's probably Darth Vader. But um, the one I had the most emotional attachment to, I think it works primarily. My main question is is this the sequence you were talking about when you said it was cringeworthy? No. Okay, good. No. Good. Because, I, you know, the two actors here, again, spoiler, it's Adam Driver and Han Solo. We can spoil things in we this can, part of I know, the show, Josh. I know. I'm just We're safe. I'm panicking because someone's <laughs> going to say, well, I pressed pause and it got fast forwarded and then I came on. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I love thematically how it comes about. Um, and I think overall it works. The reason I'm convinced the more I think about it is because it is somewhat of a heroic gesture on the part of Han Solo. Yes. To try to... Save his kid, mm-hmm. essentially, who's turned him away mm-hmm. and rejected him. Again, confrontations with fathers, running theme throughout this franchise. I think he was prepared for that possible outcome. So it was almost sacrificial. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's sacrificial and heroic is because it so goes against his character, which the Han Solo figure is the one who has resistance to all this. He doesn't want to have any part of he's this. Not he just selfless, wants to be, yeah. He's not a selfless guy. He's just a smuggler. He's out there for himself. And to take that risk... For the sake of someone else, um, and then paying the price for it, I think there's fits. closure to that. I think, character. I think there is closure to that character. Yeah. Um, you know how how well the actors sell it. I think they sell it well enough. Uh, how it's staged. I wish it was on a little less of a CGI soundstage hmm. to give it, um, you know, a little more heft like the – confront, I know it's a similar backdrop to the confrontation between Luke and Vader. No doubt. And that's clearly what they're going for. But you could really tell in they're – Or is it – In Empire. The, yeah, Empire of, yeah. primarily. Yeah. You, you could tell they're, they're grabbing on an actual railing. You know, th- this is a little more – this is an accusation against the prequels, which I agree with. The backgrounds start to get a little too CGI. I think that takes a bit away from it. But overall, I think it works – I think it fits the character. Really sad to see him go. Yeah, I'm sad to see him go as well, but I
0: had a similar reaction as you in terms of feeling like it was the right thing to do. It was the right turn for this story to take. It sets up perfectly, I can only assume, future movies. This storyline is not going to end anytime soon in terms of that character, Kylo Ren, who – is Han Solo's son and who is still going to be wrestling with that as he still has a lot to do in order to come to the dark side, which the movie does allude to at the end. He needs to finish his training. So emotionally, everything about it just felt right to me. And Josh, I think what I really appreciated about it is I'm not sure what I expected in that moment, but there was a part of me that did think Abrams was going to make it very easy to have this mushy family moment where Leia says, bring back our son, and he's going to go bring back our son. And he manages to make a speech along the lines of Luke talking to his father somewhat at the end of Return of the Jedi, right? Or he Mm -hmm. doesn't even really say so much to him as just he's begging for his father. He has a transformation. I wasn't sure there was anything Han Solo could say in that moment that was going to make me buy a transformation. I know that the movie did allude to, and I want to talk about this a little bit, that he's a weak Character in terms of not fully embracing the dark side, right. wanting so badly to be like Darth Vader that he still has some of that light in him and that maybe that transformation hasn't happened. So Abrams set it up that it could happen. It was a possibility. It was a possibility. Yeah. I like that there was that element of intrigue and drama to it, but I wasn't really going to believe. Han Solo was going to be so eloquent that he was going to be able to come up with the magic words that were going to turn him around.
2: And I'm glad that Abrams didn't try to give us that moment. So would you count Kylo Ren as one of those characters you're eager to watch, see what happens to him? Do you think he's captivating enough both as a villain, as a tortured villain? Yeah, but here is where I'm split again because it speaks to
0: what I think is going to be a strength of future movies but is right now a weakness of this movie. And that is I don't think Kylo Ren is a compelling villain. I think they – Strains so hard to make him weak, to make Mm -hmm. him someone who hasn't fully turned to the dark side, who is literally putting on a fake Darth Vader mask in a way, trying to be the evil Lord that it never fully comes off. And so the downside of that is even though I like overall what that means about the character and I think it gives him some room to grow. Watching him in this movie, he's not intimidating at any point. Right. You're never really scared of him. And that makes some scenes not play as effectively as maybe they could if he was a character who was a little bit more of a badass. He gets beat in some scenes here, Josh, that for him to even be as long as he is in his training, mm-hmm. it seems odd that he isn't more skilled, not just with a lightsaber, but every aspect of being evil, basically, yeah. and turning to the dark side. He just doesn't have that. And again, I think that is maybe... A weakness of this film, how weak that villain character is, but
2: I think that's what's going to make him potentially be a really fascinating character as we move forward. Yeah, I think it's a great way to envision that character. But what it needed then was a secondary villain that was just intimidating and menacing. And it's not and, Donald Gleason. And, no, no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So if it could have had that sort of sort of a Darth Maul on the side, would have been right. nice.
1: The droid will soon be delivered to the Resistance leading them to the last Jedi. If Skywalker returns, the new Jedi will rise.
0: Supreme Leader, I take full responsibility. General! Our strategy must now change. From December 2015, that was us on The Force Awakens. So both very positive on the movie, Josh. And it sounds like you have actually had a chance to revisit this movie once in between your most recent visit. This was the first time I'd seen it since 2015. As you rewatched it and as you re-listened to your thoughts and my thoughts, has anything
2: fundamentally shifted in your take on this film? I certainly gave it the chance to shift because I had the emotional distance now to do that, you know, to look at it maybe a little bit more clinically. Not that you need to. I mean, part right. of the fun of this whole Star Wars experience is that there is that nostalgic element. Obviously that was at play when we saw it at the critic screening. It was certainly at play the second time I saw it, which was around Christmas time with four generations of family members. So that would have been a very different experience here put in the DVD, watched it with the family at home. And I think it's probably further proof of what we said about how carefully Mm -hmm. and yet entertainingly Abrams handled this, that... It went over just fine again. I I wish that I came out of it even more enthusiastic or even saw some major issues that my nostalgia blinders had not allowed me to see earlier. But no, I think this is a really fun film. It jump-started the franchise in exactly the way fans wanted, Disney wanted, Abrams wanted. There is definitely a creative personal touch to it that he brings to these projects that he comes on to. And yeah, I didn't really have, maybe I I liked it a little bit more, yeah, a tiny bit more, I I might say. It's certainly one of the questions we asked in that review was, who are you intrigued to follow in this series? And I feel more strongly, we mentioned Rey, of course, at Mm -hmm. the top. We also talked about Kylo Ren. But I would say the same for Finn, the John Boyega character. And even, you know, Oscar Isaac as Poe Dameron. Mm -hmm. We mentioned we wish there was more of him. Well, hopefully we're going to get more because I think there's a lot of promise in that character, too. So, yeah, 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 I'm all ready to go again. Okay,
0: so you brought up that question that you did pose near the end of our original review. Were there characters, were there multiple characters that you were excited to follow again? And I can't remember exactly what I was thinking back in December 2015, but listening to it again, I think the characters I had in my mind were probably the ones you just said. Daisy Ridley's Rey, John Boyega's Finn, and Oscar Isaac's Poe Dameron, Kylo Ren. Probably was not one of those Hmm. characters on my original viewing that I was really excited to see more of. And that's something that shifted. But I want to save that conversation until we dive into the listener feedback here. Some of the thoughts we got back at the time in 2015. I'm with you. I actually like the movie more. I kind of wish I could say I had some evolution in my critical thinking, my analysis skills here. But the things that maybe did bother me a little bit then... Didn't bother me at all this time or bothered me a lot less. One thing that I don't think I fully appreciated, despite all of our praise during the review, was Harrison Ford's performance. We were both incredibly positive. We talked about him, yeah. We did. And yet, watching it this second time, maybe coming off of Blade Runner 2049 and being struck by the sadness that was inherent in the Deckard character that I never remember associating with that character in the original Blade Runner... I had that in my head watching him this time, and it really does come through. You talked about his self-awareness and that snarkiness. The snarkiness here, while he's still quick with a quip, there is a sadness, an underlying sadness, and a bit of being damaged, I suppose, that really came through on this viewing that— Just like with Blade Runner, I never would have thought of with Han Solo from the original Star
2: Wars film. So I think I just wanted to emphasize even more how good Harrison Ford is here. Yeah. And I think, you know, up to that point, he had a reputation for maybe, you know, coasting through some things or not being as engaged in later performances. But of the two things that you would think you would accuse him of doing that in these reboots, Mm -hmm. reheats he's really invested in, I think even more so in Blade Runner. As you mentioned, there are notes to that performance that absolutely were not in the original. That was one of the weaknesses of the first Blade Runner that I mentioned when we did our Sacred Cow review of it. So Ford is definitely a strength. And yeah, I appreciate it. There's something about knowing as well What happens to him? Maybe so. That is going to retrofit your appreciation of what he's doing up to that point. So that probably comes into play, too. I, I did notice one thing that we didn't talk about in that review and maybe was one of the limitations to The Force Awakens. And it did hit me this second time. It hit me before we started watching it. There isn't for me, at least. There's some good action scenes. There's some thrilling moments and absolutely some great world building. Mm-hmm. The whole sequence of meeting Rey on Jakku and yeah. those gigantic spaceships. I don't know that The Force Awakens has a signature sequence that will go down among the landmark moments from this franchise so if we did a top five mm-hmm. star wars action scenes let's say i can think of some in the prequels that would come before anything in the force awakens whether it's the pod race from phantom menace or the battle with general grievous in attack of the clones the coliseum no i think grievous is in revenge of the sith but the Colosseum in I'll attack take your word you know it. there <laughs> there there are these set pieces though these fantastic extended set pieces that even the prequels had that I don't know that The Force Awakens has. And the ones that we do remember are, as we talked about in our review, sometimes almost shot-for-shot recreations of something from A New Hope. So, again, not something where you can point to and say, oh, that was poorly done. But when I popped in the DVD, when I do that for the other Star Wars films, I'll have a few things flicker through my head like, I can't wait to get to that part. I can't wait to get to this part. I was very eager to revisit this movie as Mm -hmm. a whole. And the characters... But no single scene really jumped out at me like, oh, this is the Force Awakens moment. Okay.
0: I think that's probably fair. I would probably want to give it a little more thought before I completely agreed with you. And yet, I think you're right that there maybe isn't one standout action sequence. I would counter that, though, by noting how many times we dislike so many big set piece action sequences in films today. And there aren't any bad ones here. I don't think there are any that stand no, exactly. out. exactly. i agree. That detract from the film. I think if I was probably putting that list together, though, the one you mention on Jakku, where we're meeting Ray, that is stunning. That really yeah, is wonderful. And I think that that ties back into the fundamental criticism of this film that always surprises me to an extent. And we're going to get into it more when we deal with the feedback. But people who have just decided that... It's too derivative of A New Hope. You just can't get over that. You heard my take on it. You heard your thoughts on it. And we'll get to it a lot more during feedback. But I can't just immediately dismiss that response. I get it. I do have a hard time accepting that this so-called lack of originality, though, actually overrides all the other positive things about this movie, including the way it's crafted. Daisy Ridley's performance is a big part of it. Her character, Ray is a big part of it. The moment here when she breaks out the lightsaber for the first time was one of those heart-pounding Star Wars moments for me. Watching it, certainly on revisit, probably was in the theater the first time. But I was just really struck this time, Josh, by... How Abrams moves the camera through space in a lot of these sequences. And you know what? As I say that, it comes back to me. The opening of this film is a really good action sequence. I love the first five, yeah, ten the minutes of this good. movie. I think it's really well done. And the way he sort of moves the camera following a character or an object through action and then... Someone else moves into the space and the camera picks that up and follows that. It's just very smooth and very fluid in a way that maybe doesn't immediately strike you as
2: jaw-dropping, but it is graceful. Yeah, and it's graceful in a way we don't often get from big-budget action movies. So I appreciated that, too. I think if I were putting together candidates for that top five list, I think that opening would be something I'd have to consider. It has two great touches. It has the moment Kylo Ren freezes. The laser from uh, Poe Dameron's blaster right yep. in midair, because mm-hmm. all this, that's something we haven't seen, I don't think, in the franchise, nope. right? So you get a little touch of something new that makes you, whoa. Then you also have another thing we haven't seen, the blood mark on, on the Finn's Storm helmet. Super. Okay. Mm-hmm. And those were two instances I remember the first time seeing it. It's like, okay, we're getting some good stuff yeah. here. So I'd have to consider that. And I'd also have to consider, I think this is what you were referencing too, when Ray has the lightsaber duel with Kylo Ren in the climax. I think that moment where they finally – you get the payoff for what's been hinting from the very first scene that Finn and her meet, the hand-holding back and forth, Mm -hmm. where he keeps trying to hold her hand. She's like, what are you doing? Like, this is where it's like, okay, we're just going to make it official. I'm higher on the food chain than you are, Finn. All right? Yes. So so that's great. And that whole duel between them also is very – character-driven. Yes, I think we is. talked about that in our yes, review too, right? So so yeah, I, I, I'm not saying this is devoid of thrilling sequences mm-hmm. at all. Um, those two I would give thought to, but there's a lot of stiff competition in this franchise. Okay, so I bring up
0: nitpicks only because it seems like one of those things all cinephiles love to do with lots of films, but particularly these Star Wars films. And as we get into the feedback here in a moment, we will hear a lot of these nitpicks. So I'm going to point out a couple. We'll see if you had any that you want to sprinkle in the only ones that stood out to me this time. If I was going to be that guy who's going to say, why did this happen? The ones I have, Josh, are when Finn is making his escape with Poe Dameron from the First Order's big mothership or whatever, and they're trying to get away in the TIE fighter, and they're stuck. And the First Order realizes this, and they start firing on them. We get a moment that I don't think is totally believable for his character, Finn, in that moment. And I wonder if I'm reading too much into it, or I'm stretching here, I suppose. But we've just seen him go through this terribly traumatic ordeal involving killing Innocent people. And we've even seen him have an interaction with another stormtrooper when that stormtrooper dies. That makes you think that he is obviously a more empathetic, more emotional, reasonable person than these other mindless followers. And yet he doesn't hesitate to just start firing on a bunch of stormtroopers there in the hangar. It seems a little bit at odds. I know it might be the only thing he can do to escape, but he doesn't even have a moment's hesitation where he considers I'm about to kill
2: 10 or 15 people. Totally agree. Yep. I, I noticed that too. And it's a tough thing they're trying to balance because th- there is this great bonding moment between those two characters where they, they don't know each other at all. And here they're teaming up Finn learns some new skills, he's good at it, and it kind of captures they're mirroring our enthusiasm, or at least mine as mm-hmm. kids, when we first watched those battles. But absolutely, I did notice the harshness. There's even harshness in that opening attack scene, mm-hmm. which I think is intentional. There, there's a bit, it's, it's tied to the blood, right? This is going to be a little grittier, maybe, than what we've seen so far in the series. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to recognize the blood and the costs, then you've got to be consistent with it and recognize that there's costs every time someone gets killed. So I'm with you there. I do think as well that the final attack definitely doesn't improve on
0: the one from A New Hope, even as it is clearly built around structurally and also in terms of some of the actual shots, that sequence. But one of the reasons it fails to live up to that one or to supersede it is that The timeline of it, the countdown, if you will, while we're waiting for the planet to recharge and drain the sun, it just never actually really clicks into place. You never feel it as a viewer. I know there are lots of films that take little liberties with the timing of things, but you never do quite feel the urgency. There's a point where a character says, two minutes and I swear, 10 minutes, at least 10 minutes of screen time and <laughs> sure. lots of heavy things sure. all unfold in those two minutes. And and that is the kind of thing that even if you're fully invested, as I was the
2: first time and the second time, you can't help but be pulled out of the world a little bit when those things don't add up. OK, but they do give it the nice visual element of it being tied because it's tied to the sun. You do see the light going away and you see that hole in the sky dimming. So, so in a way, like. I I like that as an alternative to the numbers ticking down on a clock. I suppose, but we still get at least
0: three moments where someone has to
2: tell us how much
0: time's left. You're right. If they had actually just dropped that completely and just used the sun as a visual indicator, it probably would have been more effective. And then finally, I will say that it didn't quite work for me the first time, even though I don't think I said it, still didn't hear. There should be a lot of power in, I think, that final moment between Daisy Ridley and Mark Hamill that is so drawn out, the pause is so pregnant, and the cutting back and forth between those two Mm -hmm. close-ups, it actually, it it just drains it a little bit of its power.
2: Yeah. And I think we talked about in that review two other instances where returning Mm close-ups seem to go on a little bit longer. Okay. My nitpick i don't even know if this is a nitpick and we didn't get to it in our initial review but it's really for me the most glaring weakness supreme leader snoke mm-hmm. i mean this let's save it okay does that feedback. come up it comes okay up. all right yeah let's, let's go get ahead. into it then. you
0: will have plenty of opportunities to discuss snoke as we get into the feedback why don't you kick it off josh and we are going to start with some of these listeners with their nitpicks alex
2: Renaravello. Good movie, not great, but a solid relaunch for the franchise. The good, I very much enjoyed following the new characters. The bad, weird time and place for Rey to be called to the lightsaber. The ugly, the reveal of Han Solo being Kylo Ren's son was thrown away. Lame. And then an awkward staring back and forth before Kylo kills Han. I can't imagine the pressure JJ had while making this movie. He's proven he's a solid storyteller. I'm sure some of the weak points were due to having to appease so many different people. Too many cooks in the kitchen, but I'm really looking forward to where they go from here.
0: Okay, so Alex's first quibble weird time and place for Ray to be called to the lightsaber. I don't really know what Alex is getting at there. There are lots of moments in lots of action films, in particular, but especially Star Wars films, where things happen at just the right time, where something fortuitous happens, a coincidence, whatever it might be.
2: Nothing seemed to Egregious about that. Well, I, I don't know if this is what he means, but watching it again more closely, that whole basement sequence at the bar did strike me as a little awkward the first time, and this revisit, it seems it's simply a matter of blocking. If you watch it, I believe she's just watching Finn leave, mm-hmm. and is there's an emotional exchange going on there, and she's in the middle of the bar, and all of a sudden she hears, I forget if it's something calls her audibly, yes. and she turns around, and It's the spacing, like the basement where she goes is Hmm. too far away. And it's just like those two things are jammed together, like Hmm. that emotional moment of him leaving and then her suddenly making this move downstairs to this huge monumental moment for the franchise has struck me each time I watched it It as a little awkwardly handled. Okay, so you think it's a little clumsy. I didn't have
0: that reaction to it, which is a little bit different than what I think Alex is arguing. The ugly, the Han Solo reveal as Kylo Ren's father That is something I forgot from my first viewing. I thought that it's something the movie doled out. We we got it as a surprise later in the film. And actually, they say it pretty early on. They make it clear that that's the case. I think it is. Is it Snoke who says he's your father? I don't know when it's first clarified.
2: There are hints early on. It might be when he and Leia are talking that it's. Absolutely, 100% See, I think it's even clarified. before that. It could be. I think it's even before that. that but this speaks to his point. It. It's not this big, but maybe but that but would I have like been pokier yeah. if they had made it a big I announcement. I actually think that's so. a plus.
0: So I'm not with you there. Alex Scott in Centerport, New York. Here we go, Josh. More fun. Ray uses the Force way too easily for someone who barely knew what it was. Who needs a Jedi Master? Hated losing Han. Also felt like that was a death for episode eight, but I'm sure Ford didn't want that. Leia should have been there and involved, but that couldn't really happen in this story. "...too much revisiting of plot points. Having said that, why does Kylo Ren still have his right hand? Who needs Skywalker when Ren could have gotten the base location when he read Poe's mind? The MacGuffin became a little unnecessary when all they needed to do was find the base and destroy it." Snoke. First off, the name is too reminiscent of Harry Potter, and I haven't even seen those films. Second, just hints would have been nice he was in it too much for how little we knew of him." And finally, I hope Kylo Ren developed stronger. He came across as an anguished teenager, which undercut his menace and ferocity. Again, would have been better episode eight material. So we're going to get into a lot more here about Kylo Ren. We'll talk a little bit more about Snoke, too, in a moment. But what about some of Scott's
2: other issues? Well, real quickly, he's absolutely right about the name Snoke. Terrible. Yeah, it's not. Um, The MacGuffin, I think. The end goal has always been to get Skywalker. It's not the base, right? Mm -hmm. That was my understanding. So this point about... I don't know what he's really talking about here. Well, I think he's implying that the whole goal of the First Order was to find this base. My understanding was their goal was to find Skywalker. No, totally. That is the case. So the
0: issue of Rey using the Force too easily. I think I even suggested something like that in... Our initial review, I said that Ren is taken down a little too easily for someone with his training. And that means, of course, in hand with that, that Ray maybe is too good. But if anything, I would nitpick how good of a pilot Ray is. The way she commands the Millennium Falcon is maybe, to me, honestly, more, quote-unquote, unbelievable than the way she battles with Ren at the end. This time, Josh, that felt totally right to me. It felt totally natural. It did feel like, of course, she's coming late to the party in terms of waking up to her ability to use the force. But she realizes pretty quickly that she has a lot of power because she has those exchanges with Ren. And it's in those exchanges with him where she's getting the upper hand on him, where that gives her confidence in a way that imbues her skills as a fighter. She sees the fear in him. She absolutely sees the fear and knows
2: if he's afraid, then he must have reason to be afraid. It all works. I'm sorry. Yeah. And OK, book plug here, because I spend a good amount of the chapter in Movies or Prayers on the Star Wars series as movies of prayers of obedience and talk about this Ren and Ray dynamic. OK, because Ray is successful because she gives herself over to the force mm-hmm. in two distinct points you see her setting aside her instinct and this is you know kind of a cheesy thing that's been through the franchise from the beginning it but but it's beginning. yeah this is what you do right you submit to the force and then it works through you and that's what she is doing Ren doesn't do that he's perverting it for his own mm-hmm. end so that completely explains to me why he has certain limitations and she's flourishing by using it in the way it was intended to be used so that dynamic i think you see in their interactions together you see it when he is on his own and struggling to use the force and you see it when she's on her own and is seems to be on top of things now i'm going to push back a little bit on him not being a good villain but we'll get to i that. am
0: too actually as we get to this next email but one final comment on people being too good at fighting with lightsabers because it doesn't come up in this batch of feedback but i certainly did at the time see other people bring up how john boyega shouldn't be as good in his battle with kylo ren as he is and i just gotta say after watching it this time He struck me as having the exact amount of abilities with a lightsaber that you would expect someone to have who has been trained his entire life to be a soldier, but not actually know how to use the thing. And if I recall correctly, he gets beat pretty easily. Yeah, It doesn't go on that long. Right. He doesn't last last very long. It's basically just sheer will. And
2: he's almost mortally wounded. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And then he's left for dead. So that argument doesn't hold any water. Let's get to Paul
2: Garofoli and his thoughts on the villain. Say what? Adam's contention that Kylo Ren lacks the villainous gravitas of Darth Vader strains credulity. The character orders the murder of a village full of men, women, and children, kills a friend of his mom, facilitates the destruction of entire planets, then kills his father. The fact that he is conflicted, much dare I say, like Macbeth, makes his actions more heinous, not less. And we got this from Brian Schultz, who says, I loved your initial
0: review of Star Wars and agree with all your points. I wanted to add that in addition to Adam Driver's character not being a very big badass, I think the arch bad guy, Supreme leader Snoke is an even bigger disappointment. I felt no intimidation from that entirely CGI character at all. Compare that to the ominousness that Ian McDiarmid as Chancellor Senator Palpatine aroused. I think using a CGI character instead of an actor to portray the chief badass was a big mistake and badly done on top of it all. Time will tell if this is a significant character, which if he turns out not to be, may be the
2: only saving grace in that regard. Yeah. So I, th- in this revisit, I wondered And maybe this was obvious to everyone else, but my big problem was Snoke's size. Like, why is he this giant CGI? But if he's a projection, like in the previous films, how we would see the emperor, how he would visit... Maybe this is just a projection that they felt the need to blow up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like the bad guy on an IMAX screen. That's that's the logic behind it. I still don't think visually it works. No. I don't think as a presence who's intimidating, it works at all. And this this was Andy Circus too. Right. But, you know, this shows you there are limitations even to the greatest motion capture actor we have right now isn't going to overcome this sort of it's it's like the bad guy in Justice League that I talked about last week mm-hmm. it's more of this there's a lack of presence and you need yes. that pre- you need that tangible presence for a villain now they cover for that any character. they cover that a
0: little bit in the sense that he is a projection which I'd forgotten until I watched it again, that he is a projection, so it makes up for the, or that explains the CGI flimsiness, but that still doesn't make him a compelling character. Right. They could have they could have portrayed that character any number of ways, theoretically, so I'm with you, I'm with Paul, and other listeners who had an issue with Snoke. Now, let's talk about Kylo Ren. At the time, I defended myself, I wrote back to Paul, and I said... Yeah, but he's never really scary the way he is after that opening scene, certainly not in the way Vader was, including the fact that he gets beaten that lightsaber duel by someone who's never actually swung one before. And the whole emo Kylo Ren thing that kind of emerged on Twitter, that... That's there, Josh, because we do essentially get a character who isn't so much evil Sith, but a struggling art school student who has a rivalry with a fellow student and he can't impress his instructor, and his mommy and daddy never really got him. So it was very easy for me at the time, like a lot of people, to kind of write off Kylo Ren and not see him as one of the characters I was looking to follow more throughout subsequent films. I have changed my mind a little bit on that,
2: but it sounds like you aren't very down on Kylo Ren either. No, I wasn't down on him from the beginning. I acknowledge that Driver gives it this spin. I think it's a very intentional choice. And I guess I just placed it within the context of we're not just seeing one character's growth here. We're seeing... Too, We're Mm -hmm. seeing Rey and we're seeing Kylo Ren. So for him to be this all intimidating force, I guess maybe this is a fault of trying to make the one to one comparisons, which we fell into that trap a little bit, too, in our initial review. Right. Oh, he's Darth. He's Darth Vader. Right. Well, then he better be as scary as Darth Vader or he fails. Mm -hmm. I think he's obviously echoing Darth Vader, but also echoing Luke in some interesting ways in having that tension within him and that as i was discussing earlier is tied to how he uses the force how successful he Mm -hmm. is at it so i totally get the initial sort of what is driver doing here i think driver is just as a screen presence myself included people don't always know how to take him i still haven't put my finger on what it is about that guy but you see him on screen and you're like oh well, this is interesting. And maybe that doesn't work for a villain, a conventional villain. But I think it works for how they're doing this character. I did find him scary. I think that opening sequence is crucial in at least lending him a level of intimidation. And as we said, because it's a great action sequence, and he's a big part of that. I can't remember what word
0: you just used, but you said that he's similar or that he's echoing in some ways, Vader. The realization I had, the minor epiphany I had this time was, well, I'll ask it in the form of a question. Why does Kylo Ren wear a mask that also changes his voice? What's the answer to that?
2: Well, I mean, the obvious answer is he's copying Vader.
0: He's just playing pretend. He's just imitating Darth Vader.
2: You're never going to be as scary as Darth Vader when you're pretending to be him. And that's the case. Well, and when you take off the mask. I mean, that's another deliberate choice to humanize him. But think about how many movies we had before we saw Vader's face, right? right? So here's where they purposely take divergent approaches.
0: I think that I made the mistake of seeing that opening scene, seeing the similarities to Vader, wanting to immediately imbue him with that much menace. That much power. And then when the movie, through all the various things we've talked about now and talked about originally, the way it undercuts that and humanizes him, I found that to be a negative. I thought that it made him a weaker villain. It turns out he was always the weak kid who actually just has some of the power and some of the menace and some of the evil of Darth Vader, but he's really the weak kid. And who we see in the beginning is all show. It's very telling. When he has moments, unlike Vader, how many times do we see in the other original Star Wars films, when someone delivers bad news to Darth Vader, and he either takes it very stoically, or he very stoically punishes them, Mm -hmm. right? What does Kylo Ren do? He acts like... A nine year old. Yes. Like he acts like a nine year old with his lightsaber. And what that tells me is not just that he's a child, but that he is childish in many ways. He is not mature at all, certainly in the ways of the force or the dark side either. And all he knows how to do is lash out. Those should have been signs to me that they were trying to tell us who this character really is he's the aspiring vader but he is ultimately a kid playing dress up and i also thought josh there was something very telling in the fact that when we hear snoke in this film at the end of the movie after he's been defeated he's been defeated i think he's been maimed he's really been embarrassed he's been embarrassed by ray who again he's very aware is just discovering her powers think about what that would do to him Considering all he wants to be and all he wants to fulfill in his life, Snoke says to Donald Gleason's character, who is, again, still not good in this film. No, he says to him, go get Ren. It's time for him to complete his training. And this time that hit me is not just sort of a plot point, but actually Snoke recognizing almost like with Anakin Skywalker, that the moment where these pupils of his can actually complete their training is when they have been so beaten down. And damage that he knows now that they're going to embrace power mm. more than they ever have before yeah. because they just lost it. They were just humiliated. And now that he's been humiliated, now he was actually hanging on too much to his humanity, to his mother and father and the Force. And now he can beat it out of him because he's been destroyed. So this time I actually had, oddly, an empathy. I felt an empathy for Kylo Ren. Sure. I wanted, of course, Ray. To defeat him, but I also recognize what that was doing to him and how that was ultimately
2: removing or crushing any vestiges of his humanity in that moment yeah and that comes into play in the confrontation he has with his father too right where you have to believe and i did that he was actually conflicted in that moment that he wasn't trying to trick him or that he had made up his mind and was just playing with him like there was a real moment of decision there i i felt there was now the the fit throwing sequence Mm -hmm. it's funny but I would argue the movie knows that. There's the little touch of That's those two stormtroopers who come around the corner. Yes. All they do is turn around like, this happens a lot. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I so... didn't give Abrams enough credit for, for understanding the humor in that. And I think it's definitely there. And then one last thought on this, what you were just saying about Han and that decision. Again, didn't listen to our review before I rewatched the movie. And as I was waiting for that moment to come my recollection of that moment was that it wasn't much of a decision. I thought it was more him kind of toying with his father and toying with the audience a little bit, and he always was going to do it. And then, as I saw it again, I realized, no, the indicator there is that moment where the sun is being drained, and there's light on him in that moment, and then there isn't any more light in the moment where he finally does actually commit the act. And I think that's obviously supposed to be an indicator that, While that light was there, while the the light of the good side was there and the dark side hadn't overtaken it, there was still a chance that he was going to make the right decision and spare his father and come back to that side. But once the light goes out, once the sun is diminished, then he knows what he has to do.
2: Yeah, there's the nice touch, too, where he drops the mask and that's an instance of actual Interior conflict, I think, as well. Okay,
0: so we got a couple more bits of email here as we get to, really, it's just two more, Josh, criticisms of the film, kind of not just nitpicks, but big issues with how the movie's constructed.
2: First is from Nick Moses. He's in Simi Valley, California. Just listen to your review of the new Star Wars movie, and you really hit every nail on its head. I agree with you both about J.J. Abrams' handling of franchises not originally his own, with your take on the new cast, Harrison Ford, etc. I enjoyed the movie, found it familiar and fun, and will probably see it a second time in the theater. My biggest gripe about the movie is the basic story itself. When I was a kid watching these movies in the theater, the enormity of the stakes involved in what happened to Luke was ever-present. The fate of everything hinged on him. He was the new hope. The world would either plunge into evil and darkness forever, or he would lead the good guys in victory over the dark side, and all would be tranquil and good. As we know, the latter is what happened. Vader was converted before he died, the Emperor was vanquished, in a way that still chokes me up sometimes, and good prevailed. It was a really great feeling as a kid to know that in this world, there was no more evil and the good guys were in control. So, here we are a short 35 years later, and everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. For me, the current condition of things in The Force Awakens diminishes the stakes involved in the first three movies. We all go along on this ride with the unlikely hero who defies all odds and defeats the mighty empire for what? To see a new evil empire with a different name, pretty much in control such a short time later? I would have liked the first of these new films to allow us to live a little in the world Luke, Han, and Leia fought so hard to create. It would have been nice to see that all these years later, Han and Leia still together and happy. Luke doing whatever Jedi masters do, but doing it with his friends and in the company of those we watched him fight side by side with. The first film could have been about the very beginning of the evil that is to come, the seeds of corruption or evil or whatever starting to take hold in Han and Leia's son, slowly work into a world where things are just starting to unravel. If done right, they probably could have gotten an additional three movies out of this story. Uh, they'll get to that. I have no doubt about it. Instead, we get a reboot of the first film with all the familiar tropes. Again, even though it doesn't sound like it, I did like the movie. It was good to visit with. The characters and themes again, I guess I was just kind of hoping for more. Okay, so let's go ahead and then just get immediately to Felix from Germany,
0: and he is not as kind as Nick, and then we can respond because I think they're both connected here. It's absolutely not like you to do that, but you seem to be cutting the movie massive amounts of slack just for being Star Wars. First off, if any other movie would have so blatantly copied an existing script, you two would have torn it a new one. This is no longer homage or sticking to what works. This is simply selling us a new hope. Again, From the droid carrying the important message away from the Empire, I mean, First Order on a desert planet, the Millennium Falcon escape, the alien bar scene, to the death of the old mentor characters by the villain while the others watch on a planet, destroying space station, to the mumble-bleeding attack of an X-wing on the weak spot of the space station through a long corridor. That would all still be acceptable, if boring, if it was done well, but it's not. Characters just feel however the script tells them to, with no sense of development. Finn now loves Rey because they met a few hours ago, There is no geography, and characters just appear where the script needs them, and some of them are such obvious ex machina devices, we could be in a bad video game, cough R2-D2. The Force, the thing Luke needed to train one and a half movies for, here it is, is now something you mastered after thinking about it really hard for a second, enough to beat a trained Force user, and other plot points simply get written away. The few new ideas the movie has are so few and far between that they hardly matter, giving Stormtroopers an anti-lightsaber device was cool, but it happened once, and aside from that, Stormtroopers are unthreatening and useless again. Again. Oh, and you know what's much scarier than a planet-destroying space station? A four-times-bigger space station that destroys three planets. That's just lazy screenwriting. It's all a shame, because the actors mostly bring it this time. Oscar Isaac is good as always, Daisy Ridley is great, and John Boyega is quite relatable as an actor. The effects are also pretty good, and the cinematography is solid. But there isn't a single new idea in this movie's head, and what is there is so sloppily done you'd think the crew was more concerned with honoring the holy original than making a good movie. Say what you want about the very flawed prequels. At least they tried to expand the universe in a meaningful way and tell its own story. This is a sad reflection on today's movie industry that would rather serve you a reheated, stale version of your childhood nostalgia than to create something themselves. Which is not surprising, but it's surprising that you let them get away with it. P.S. And here's this nitpick again. Oh, in the scene where Ray uses the force on the stormtrooper? Screw you, Force Awakens. Bad enough that she can mind control people without any training or explanation, but trying to be in on the joke by having it not work twice and then still going through with it? No. Screw you, movie. Oh, Felix, such so, anger. I'm guessing, Josh, there are a lot of people out there nodding vociferously. Sure,
2: yeah, we heard this. In agreement. With Felix. I think you did a good job at the top talking about your revisit of explaining how this is well crafted. And I agree with everything you said in those terms. We mentioned it. I believe we mentioned it in our initial review. Look at Jurassic World from the same year. That's the movie to me Felix is describing, where it's not as well crafted. It doesn't really have much investment in the original world that it's reheating, not as. Rich of a world, Mm -hmm. granted, but still. Jurassic World is the movie that I feel like is being described here. Now, I also mentioned in that revisit that one of the reasons that maybe I didn't enjoy it more is because it was such a safe entry, re entry back into this world. I think that is a limitation. I think things are set up really well for The Last Jedi because of that, but this is not as inventive of a movie. My letterbox ranking of the Star Wars films, the Don't prequels are ahead of oh, no. The Force Awakens for this reason. They built on the world while still being a part of it and showed a lot more imagination. There are certainly faults with them, just as there are with The Force Awakens. But I think this is a legitimate point Hmm. to being held back by the fact that this does copy A New Hope so closely but I'm with you that it copies it really well.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm just going to say that imagination doesn't override craft for me. And that's why this movie certainly would be much higher up on the ranking than at least two of the prequels, maybe not the third prequel. I don't want to repeat myself. In re-listening, I think I did a decent job of articulating my take on this criticism of the film in terms of it being a case where Abrams really knew from perhaps... A cynical marketing perspective that he had to kind of reset the whole foundation of this franchise. And I'm okay with that. But more than that, I think it is a case where he really understands how this whole thing is about this convergence of the new and old, the way Science fiction is meeting old school kind of swashbuckling adventure stories. The way from that opening crawl the long time ago, but in a galaxy far, far away, we have the new and old converging here in this entirely new set of characters and circumstances, no matter how much some of the broad strokes of the plot and the specifics do line up. They're in new circumstances, brand new, fascinating characters, but they feel at once as if they are commingling with all of these past characters, which is exactly what they should be doing i think that's what star wars is fundamentally about i think one of the reasons i can excuse it even more josh is because i really noticed this time a scene that didn't come up at all in our original review and that's the one at the bar maz's cantina where she is talking to boyega and i think harrison ford daisy ridley is there as well And she's saying the same way the Empire is replaced by the First Order, the same way the First Order just replaces the Empire after being defeated. And we think all is going to be right with the world, as Nick expressed his disapproval of how that plays out. Everything is cyclical. History and the way it moves and the way we re-examine and retell our myths are all just told again. And in that moment, she's expressing that she's saying, we're always going to have this. We're always going to have these moments where I'm going to see new heroes who remind me of the old heroes and new villains who remind me of the old ones. And Abrams just fundamentally gets that. And that's why this fundamentally feels like such a good Star
2: Wars movie to me. Yeah, Maz as a character, I got stuck on the first time. I I didn't quite buy that whole sequence, but revisiting it, it worked much better for me. And part of that, I think, is here's a motion capture performance that I do think works. Lupita Nyong'o plays Maz. And there really is some linchpin work being done here that's crucial and important. I would agree with you to this criticism that Nick offers, because absolutely, I think this is a strength that The Force Awakens is recognizing this darkness is always going to be yes. with us, right? Yep. And in that's in, in a weird way an echo of real world experience mm-hmm. so that you can have a generation whose grandparents fought in World War II and yet Here's the Vietnam War or whatever right. it might be, you know, right. the, this is a recognition that we don't solve things once and for all. Like we're not. we're Yes. Humans are not capable of that. And there's something kind of cool about the movie acknowledging that. I think it's interesting that Nick mentions a couple of times how as a kid, he just wanted everything to be all right. Well, yeah, of yeah course. we all do. But... And that's one of the accusations against the prequels is that they are too childlike. Well, here, maybe that's a strength of The Force Awakens is that it's one way it's growing up a little bit and recognizing, yeah, the good guys won, but they're going to have to go at it another day.
0: OK. Any final thoughts, Josh? Anything else you got to get off your chest? I think I've said my piece on the force awakens at least for a couple more years yeah i think i'm good okay the force awakens is available everywhere if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes either the new or the
2: original takes feedback at filmspotting.net is where you can email us our 2014 interview with director ryan johnson is next don't worry he spoils nothing about the last jedi but he does have some advice for what order you should watch the existing star wars films stay with us
0: Before getting to our interview with The Last Jedi director, Ryan Johnson, from 2014, we wanted to spend a couple minutes on the film Spot and Golden Brick Award. Thanksgiving is usually the time, Josh, where we revisit some of the Brick candidates share our reviews and throw out any other nominees for this award, even though we are always cramming over this last month of the year to fit in some of these films that might qualify as movies that are not mainstream. They're not highly publicized. They're made by a new or newly established filmmaker and they really show an artistic vision. They were named after Ryan Johnson's 2005 film Brick. So, Josh, let's go ahead and just list off here the current candidates, and people can maybe use the holidays to try to catch up. On some of these, because at this point, I think almost all of them are available.
2: Yeah, I think they are, including Band-Aid, written, directed by Zoe Lister-Jones. This is one we have both seen, I think, separately, though. I was able to catch it at Sundance and did enjoy it. Didn't write a full review out of Sundance, but thought it was quite funny, very sweet. This is, uh, they're married, right? Yes. A married couple who start to work their issues out. Marital issues out through (laughs) song. By... Forming, by a band. forming a garage band essentially yeah. and so the music's really good it is good yeah i enjoyed that quite a bit the next one we have here is one you've seen i haven't brigsby bear directed by dave mccary and it's written by saturday night live's kyle mooney and kevin costello what's that one about again Adam? brigsby bear kyle mooney plays a character who
0: actually is raised by mark hamill from star wars oh Bang you're kidding in the movie and we meet him at the beginning as a kid Well, he's not a kid. That's the thing. He's like in his late 20s or something, but he's still very much like a kid. And he's obsessed with a show called Brigsby Bear. We don't know the circumstances. We just know that he's out in the middle of nowhere. He has no other interaction with actual people. And his whole life revolves around this TV show. And then something happens that completely upends his world. And he sets out to remake Brigsby Bear, to basically make a Brigsby Bear movie because all he has is this television show and it is funny and it's inventive and I definitely think it's worth seeing and it's available to rent on DVD and streaming right now.
2: Also available right now is Columbus, written and directed by Koganada. We both fell pretty hard for this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about two strangers who meet in the small town of Columbus, Indiana, which is something of an architecture mecca. Architecture is foundational to the film. It's a topic- Both characters are invested in and spend a lot of their time talking about as they tour the architectural landmarks of this city. But the movie itself is constructed Mm -hmm. carefully and intentionally, just like the art that it's admiring. And and really, Mm -hmm. I think what I liked about it is the way it's incorporating that architecture into itself as a piece of cinema yeah it's a strong strong
0: contender for the golden brick and if you have just caught up with it and somehow missed this or you do see it here in the near future i encourage you to listen to my conversation with Koganada, one of the most thoughtful filmmakers i've talked to you can find that at filmspotting.net and just click on interviews we then have three here josh we'll rattle off pretty quickly that you have all seen that
2: i still need to catch up with lemon raw and whose streets so lemon really weird uncomfortable comedy directed by janiska bravo i wasn't sold on this at sundance but i think i talked about it on the show when i heard her talking about her inspiration for it it opened up a different window on the movie for me so i think it's one that definitely people should check out raw i've mentioned many times uh know, let's just say a college cannibalism movie and we'll leave it at that yeah it's fantastic. Who Streets is a documentary, I think our only documentary so far yep. as a Golden Brick eligible film. That but it's compiled by uh, Sabah Folion and Damon Davis. And essentially, they took footage, mobile phone footage from the Ferguson protests, and captured that whole experience in that way. Who Streets is available, as is Raw and Lemon. To rent streaming or on DVD.
0: And finally, this one actually I don't think is on our Golden Bricks page. It needs to be added because we agree it belongs there. The happiest day in the life of Olimaki. You might recall us talking about this movie a little bit. Last October 2016, when it played at the Chicago International Film Festival, it's a black and white biopic of sorts about the Finnish boxer who had a shot at the nineteen sixty-two World Featherweight title. The director is Yuho Kuusmanen. You can get that on various
2: platforms, including at MUBI. And it's the of sorts that you said is the reason it's on this list because I think formally this is interesting, not just the black and white cinematography, but other elements as well, but also how it twists a little bit the biopic formula Mm -hmm. i think we both appreciated that about it yeah if you go to filmspotting.net
0: slash bricks you can find this complete list and links to the platforms where you can see these films now we recognize that we have a lot of films to see we appreciate all the feedback we've gotten with recommendations on films that should be golden brick contenders and we also did a little bit of homework on our end we reached out to the fine critics that are part of the film spotting family over at film spotting svu congratulations to matt singer by the way it's a little bit Belated here on the show, but recently the father now of a second daughter. So, congratulations. He's on paternity Matt. leave, I yeah, believe. He is. That's why you have some guests right now on SVU and also the critics from the Next Picture show. So, we wanted to share a few of those because you might want to add them to your golden brick. List, and we are certainly
2: going to try to add them to the movies we're going to catch up with over the next few weeks. So, here are some suggestions from Film Spotting SVU's Alison Wilmore. Chloe Zhao's The Rider. Good Lord, I love The Rider. She says Eliza Hitman's Beach Rats. John Carroll Lynch's Lucky, that stars the late Harry Dean Stanton. The Lure, which is from Poland. The Villainess from Korea's Byung Giljung. And Joshua Weinstein's Menashe. Menashe. Sure. Also, Rat Film, a documentary directed by Theo Anthony. So I really want to see that in many
0: of those titles. Lucky is the only one of them that I have seen. Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show says, I second Beach Rats and Rat Film big time. Brawl on Cell Block 99 is up for movie of the year status for me. But I recognize I may be a little crazy on that front. And Scott acknowledges that it might not be a brick contender based on the fact that the director of the film s craig zoller also directed bone tomahawk we just got chastised by a listener about a month ago in poll comments for not seeing this movie so a lot of people did see bone tomahawk but zoller for us would be a new name he would be a filmmaker that we're
2: discovering so i feel like Subblock block 99 probably should qualify the next picture shows Tasha Robinson's seconded cell block, and she also suggested Macon Blair's "I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore." Have you seen that one or not? I yet still either? have not okay. seen it. Yeah, no, I got to catch do. up with it too. I do want to
0: see it. We also have this from Keith Phipps from the Next Picture Show: Bill Morrison's "Dawson City: Frozen Time." Can't wait for this. A doc using footage from 1910s and 20s, shot in Yukon Territory, 300 miles from the Arctic Circle. Paint it black. This is Amber Tamblin's directorial debut. It's a spooky, moving LA Gothic starring Aaliyah Shakat and. After rereading this today, I did add this movie to my list of female directed debuts, tying in with our topic last week on the show. You can find that full list over at Letterboxd or in the notes for this show. And Sweet Virginia, Keith recommends, really top-notch noir from a newish director starring John Bernthal and Christopher Abbott. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune seconded Rat Film and also Dawson City Frozen Time. So there are a lot of titles we know we threw at you. You know, we're going to list all of these as well on that Bricks page filmspotting.net slash Bricks the ones that are currently in contention and the ones that we need to see and maybe the ones you need to see as well
2: when I found you
1: I saw raw untamed power and beyond that
0: That is a clip from the trailer for Star Wars Episode 8 The Last Jedi, written and directed by Ryan Johnson. We had reached out to him in anticipation of our 500th show, a live episode we did at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. And he was game, and he was still game even after the announcement came out that he was going to helm this movie and was in the thick of pre-production during the interview he talks about some of the movies he was watching with his crew josh even tries to trap him into saying something mean about the star wars prequels even though that would have just been for my benefit yeah i just would have gotten him in hot water
2: trying to get him to back me up and he kind of did
0: yeah and he also talks about just what it was like for him to take on this massive job here is that august 2014 interview with ryan johnson Ryan. Lots of applause. Can you hear it coming through the mic there?
1: I can hear it. Hello, everybody. I'm so, uh, I'm so happy to be here uh, electronically.
0: <laughs> well, it's great to have you. Congratulations on the gig. What can you tell us at this point? How is the Episode 8 process going?
1: Uh, there's Honestly, there's not a lot of, to tell. We're just getting into it, but I can tell you that um, I'm... And then, yeah, I can tell you that I'm really excited by all the stuff that I can't tell you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I,
1: I, I, yeah, I think uh, everybody's in for, um, for a real treat with what's coming up. And I'm just, I feel like a little kid right now. I'm just really, 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 really happy. Anyway, so.
2: <laughs> well, Ryan, it's Josh here. And we actually haven't had a chance to talk yet, even though you've got a long history with the show. I do want to assure you that Adam made sure that I was a huge fan of Brick before he even approached me about being on the show, um, and it was absolutely one of my favorite films of that year, so uh, it was great to see that uh, you've also been a fan of the show. That's just fantastic. I, I'm curious, as far as the Star Wars job goes, why did you take the job? I mean, if people think of it as a no-brainer, um, but, but there's got to be a reason where you came to that decision, this is what I want to do, because certainly you're a filmmaker with a, a lot of options a lot of ways you could go with your career what was it about this huge project that you thought yeah that that's what i want to do next
1: um yeah i mean i'll i'll, I'll be honest when they first talked to me about it i i thought it was going to be a really um i thought i was going to you know go home and make a list of pros and cons and kind of i thought it was going to be an intellectual decision like figuring out if this makes sense and uh it was the decision ended up not being you know it ended up just being that the thought of doing it made me so incredibly joyfully happy the mm-hmm. thought of my life for the next couple of years being working on this and trying to um you know getting to play in this world and and make something um you know make something that uh, I could be proud of in this world that I've I've loved since I was a kid was uh that it ended up just entirely coming from the heart, the decision. So, um, and you know, like I said, already I'm having the time of my life. So it's, uh, you know, it, yeah, it feels like a cliche to just say, you know, we all, for me, literally the first movie that I can remember my dad putting me in the car to go see was, was star Wars. And I know we all have, or a lot of us have stories like that. So it's nothing unique, but, um, there's something really special about now as an adult filmmaker getting the opportunity to, to play in that world. So. Now,
2: once you made that decision, is there one thing you think that landed you the job, that got you the job, that they saw in you, or that you said, um, or a personal attachment, anything like that that you can point to?
1: I can only assume it was a clerical error. <laughs> I can assume. Like the beginning of Brazil, when the fly gets caught in the typewriter and it prints the wrong <laughs> instead of Tuttle somewhere. Brian Johnson, who is actually qualified to. Be- <laughs> Mailbox just infuriated. Just, <laughs> right, we, are, right,
0: we are big fans of his work, of course, Brian Johnson. <laughs> your your first tweet, Ryan. Yeah, your first tweet was hilarious. Of course, that clip from the right stuff, basically saying, you know, I hope I don't f this up. And I am I am curious how your life, first of all, has changed since the announcement, and what is the biggest pressure you face? Is it external, or is is it too early for? that kind of pressure or is it internal is it pressure you're putting on yourself
1: um uh, but there was none until you just brought it up now and now i'm terrified what are you doing? sorry <laughs> now i'm scared <laughs> uh, uh, no uh, it was uh, well i mean I, I, you, you know life hasn't really changed at all except that i'm working on working on this now that but uh, uh, in terms of the pressure it's weird. Like I don't know. It, it's and I don't know whether I'm just kind of like a tightrope walker, not looking down. But so far, I've kind of been waiting for the scary. Oh my God! I'm actually doing this to hit, and it it really hasn't. I've just I think the folks at Lucasfilm, um, you know, they're great creative folks who are all in it for the right reasons, and it it kind of feels more like summer camp than it does a high pressure job it's just a really good creative environment here so um, so yeah I'm sure the terror will hit at some point and uh, I'll be I'll I'll text you in the middle of the night when it does (laughs) Um, love
0: it well I know that you're a director like many directors who likes to revisit films or visit films sometimes to inspire you as you're working on a project and I'm curious do you plan to spend time with any particular films you personally the crew the cast as you uh, get further along in this process.
1: You know, it's funny. We have um, uh, been just watching movies all together. Just like um, we, for a week, we were just getting together every night and watching a different film. Some of which were more directly applicable than others. Some of which were just getting our heads in. Uh, you know, like we watched Twelve O'Clock High, um, which is the great, uh, you know, great World War World War Two kind of flying fortress movie with Gregory Peck. Um, uh, but then we also watched some stuff that was farther afield. We watched, uh, um, what was the weirdest one we watched? We watched, watched this Russian film called a uh, letter never sent, uh, for some weird kind of esoteric reasons So just to, for different reasons, so we're watching just kind of like a bunch of different stuff and talking about it with the whole team. And it's, uh, like I said, it's just part of that terrific creative environment that, uh, um, we're trying to get going with this thing I guess you
2: know. so your three previous features Ryan have all been original concepts and uh, this time you're obviously working with a pre-existing idea to some extent so maybe it's similar to your work on shows like Breaking Bad um, where you're coming to something that's been in existence and there have been creative hands on it already can you talk a little bit about what you liked about that sort of filmmaking process, and maybe what's challenging about it?
1: Well, it's a it's a, a little bit different because with and Bad, it was um, you know I didn't write at all in that. I was you know there were terrific writers, and so that was literally just coming in as a director to do the work. And um, with this, I'm 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 writing the script as well and directing it. So it's true. It's it definitely has to. Fit into a bigger picture, but um, but weirdly, it doesn't seem that um, I don't know. Even when you even when you start from scratch and write something um, original, you have kind of the initial idea, and you're still fitting into a, a bigger picture. You still have um, I don't know. It's it, the process of writing is almost kind of figuring out the the box that you're in, but you're definitely still in a box, you're trying to make something very specific work to a specific end with specific restraints um, on the story. So it actually doesn't feel that unfamiliar. It just feels like working, um, you know, just working in kind of a different, a different genre and working in a a different box to belabor this already tortured analogy. As far as those pre-existing
2: Star Wars films go, um, I'm a defender of the prequels. I feel like all of the prequels. Uh, I, I do feel that they, both the good things and the bad things about them tap into uh, what's true about the original films in a way um, that's just fantastic to experience and possibly uncomfortable to experience when you're an adult and watching these, um, yet that's what I do like about them. So. My question for you is, am I crazy?
1: No, I actually, I don't think you are at all. I really I think um, you know, I, I think there is something really beautiful to the prequels, and they have a real, uh, I don't know, when you when you step back and there was an interesting, like uh, one of these mashup videos that was put out recently where someone cut all three of the prequels into like a six minute trailer when you watch that um i don't know I, I, you watch the shape of the whole thing and the way the whole thing is laid out there's a beautiful elegance to it but i will say with with these movies we're we're trying to harken back to like the feel and the tone of the original star wars christmas special that's actually our
2: <laughs> yeah uh
1: I, i'm not even gonna go go that far uh, or, uh, I do wanna... This is a big spoiler, but we do have Jefferson Starship coming back. <laughs> yeah.
2: I do want to put some pressure on you, though, and relieve some from me. Huge family question. My kids have yet to watch any of the Star Wars films, so we're obviously going to start getting ready and doing that. Do I start one through three or four through six? I, I can't do this myself, so I need you to tell me, and that's what I'm going to do, whatever you say. Wow. Jesus. See?
1: <laughs> See? My personal take is you do four through six, and then you do one through three. Thank yeah. you. It's Just is, because storytelling wise, four through six were constructed um, with the notion that you wouldn't know it was one through three yet, and uh, one through three were constructed with the notion that you know four through six. So a little bit like backward.
0: So Ryan obviously your 500 shows we're taking a little bit of a stroll down memory lane so maybe you can play along here and and I know this this might be very tough for you to follow along with this question but I don't know let's say you had a time machine maybe there's another version of you in the past he's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt or something I don't know just imagine and I'm curious what would the current Ryan Johnson go back and tell the Ryan who was about to make brick
1: <laughs> uh. Uh, I wouldn't say a word I wouldn't get out of the time machine because I'd be afraid I would just I would screw everything up you always in time travel is you always screw something up when you try and interfere so I wouldn't uh, I would keep the sports almanac in my pocket and I would just go straight back it would be the dullest time travel movie ever but it would be everywhere
0: oh no we can't have possibly lost him at that moment. <laughs> I don't know. There he is. Am yeah, I back? Oh no. You're back. So you're not getting out, basically. No advice for the former you.
1: Oh, really? It cut out right then.
0: Yeah, right he then. Didn't. Sorry.
1: I just it was so pretentious. <laughs> That's fine. We, we can move on, but
0: we're going to get to your <laughs> top five, Ryan, of the film spotting era that I hope you have meticulously crafted. But I am very curious about your embrace of film criticism. You are dating a film critic, great film critic, Karina Longworth, hosts a podcast currently. You've been obviously on this show and other film podcasts. You correspond with many film critics on social media. And I basically want to know what do you see as the function of film criticism? And, and maybe what's the best criticism you've received, positive or negative, something that you got that actually really did strike a chord with you?
1: Well, um well, I don't know. It's weird. I and I can only just speak to how I read stuff. Not. I don't want to make any like grand statements about film criticism or its purpose or something. But just for me personally, I mean, first of all, I don't um, I actually it's two different questions. Like I don't when you when you ask, like, how, have I ever gotten a criticism that has helped or, or or whatever? I really I don't think. I, I, and I go back and forth, but I don't think filmmakers should read their own reviews. You Obviously, you do because you can't help it. But at the end of the day, I think with good film criticism, the reviews aren't written for you. And good film criticism, from my perspective, is not um, a grade on the term paper that's telling the filmmaker what they did right or wrong. Uh, it's a writer who has seen a film and had an experience of it. Uh, and is writing honestly about what they experienced in that theater, and so I love reading film criticism of other films, again, not in the sense of seeing some checklist of this was good, this was bad, here's your lead, not in a consumer report style way, but the film critics that I love reading are all writers that I love reading, and they have a lot of interesting, the way their minds work are interesting, so seeing how they take in movies and uh, how they report on what that experience of watching that movie was, um that's what I really love so uh yeah, and i do I do really like that, but it gets i don't know it gets it does get tricky and emotionally thorny when it's uh, your own stuff, just inevitably it becomes you know so i but but yeah, that's. Yeah convoluted well, way of answering
0: that. Ryan, I'm really grateful for that answer because Josh has actually been pushing for a more Consumer report style <laughs> podcast. <laughs> that's, yeah, been... For you,
1: I think that's good. Like I said, <laughs> if you have an interesting voice, you can get away with the other thing. You guys, I think, letter grades, uh, I would stick with. I would do one to ten. Okay.
0: <laughs> we'll come up with something. So, okay, Ryan, only a couple minutes, but I did give you a little bit of homework for this interview. Top five films of the film spotting era, 25, 2005 to 2014. What do you have?
1: Can I call an audible? Can I do 10 really quick? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah? You can okay. do whatever you what? want, Ryan. You think you're Adam? Yeah. Uh, okay, and I, but these are movies that everyone knows, so I'm not going to even like, give explanation problem. I'll just run through them. Um, so kind of starting at the back, but it's kind of fuzzy. This is what I came up with. Um, Holy Motors... Uh, upstream color, the tree, the tree of life, un- under the skin, the Darjeeling Limited, inglorious bastards, a serious man, no, con- no country for old men, the master, and there will be blood. Um, Great picks. I do want to give a shout out to Josh about Meek's Cutoff, which is a beautiful and terrifying, creepy, wonderful, excellent movie. That um, I think, uh, yeah, if, if anyone out there hasn't seen Meek's Cutoff, that's that's uh, something you should definitely hunt, hunt down immediately. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: Ryan Johnson, we've obviously been following your career closely. We look forward to following it for another 500 episodes or so. Best of luck with everything. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Well, guys, you guys are the best.
0: Our thanks again to Ryan Johnson, our conversation with him from August 2014, The Last Jedi, as I'm guessing a few people listening are aware, comes to theaters on December 15th. That is our Thanksgiving show out wide this weekend, Coco, the new one from Pixar, in limited release, The Man Who Invented Christmas, a Dickens biopic that takes place during his writing of A Christmas Carol, and Roman J. Israel Esquire, Denzel Washington's new one directed by Dan Gilroy, who gave us Nightcrawler. I feel like the buzz on this one is kind of lukewarm coming out of some of the festivals, but I've now seen the preview a couple times and it's got that Gilroy Nightcrawler feel to it. Denzel seems like he's having a ball on screen and I'm actually really excited to see it. Sounds like a great combination to me. Yeah. Next week, we are going to get to our look back at the year 2007. 10 years, looking back on one of the best years in cinema history. We're planning right now a Sacred Cow review of Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood and some top five tying in with that. We don't know yet. We are open to ideas, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail, Three one two.
2: Two six four zero seven four four. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dissot and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths, and thank you to the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. Special thanks as well to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. Please help us spread the word about Film Spotting. You can do that pretty easily by sending... Pretty easily by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
0: Film Spotting is listener supported.